gaze. And we've done somewhat of a transition last week, and, and now we're giving attention to the aspects about us that need to be remedied by seeing something of God. And the reality is we're in need of fixing. And hopefully we all recognize that. If not, I'm sure your family members would be willing to help you out. Uh, perhaps they'd be so kind as to provide you a list with the attending checkboxes and, and schedule for completion. But there is a way that this process is designed to work biblically. And unless we realize that, then we're going to end up frustrated any time we attempt to change some things about us. You know, we've quoted A.W. Tozer before that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that's essentially the point of this series What's most important isn't that we understand ourselves a little bit better, although there's certainly value in that. But what's most important is, as Jeremiah 9 says, that we understand and know the Lord. And specifically that He is the one who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. And seeing these kinds of things about Him, it's intended to have certain effects on us. But as Pastor Keith has helped us to recognize, this is not the seeing of glimpsing, but of gazing. And that's an important distinction because it's possible to be around what God has made available to us while failing to truly see it. And this is powerfully illustrated in, in one of the final scenes of The Last Battle, which is the concluding book to C.S. Lewis's series, The Chronicles of Narnia. And in this chapter, the lion Aslan invites a group of dwarfs who up until this point have been holdouts on them. He invites them to enter into the joy of his kingdom. And yet they are blind to the blessing of it. Lewis writes, Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarf's knees. Pies and pigeons and trifles and ices, and each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of things you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay, and another said he got a bit of an old turnip, and a third said he'd found a raw cabbage leaf, and they raised golden goblets of rich wine to their lips and said, ah, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at, never thought we'd come to this. But very soon, every dwarf began suspecting that every other dwarf had found something nicer than he had. And they started grabbing and snatching and went on to quarreling till in a few minutes there was a free fight and all the good food was smeared on their faces and clothes or trodden underfoot. But when at last they sat down to nurse their black eyes and their bleeding noses, they all said, well, at any rate, There's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. Now notice what's happening here. Gracious provision has been made available. But it doesn't register. They are sadly unaffected. They aren't able to see it. And and this leads to things like suspicion of others. Competition, fighting, frustration, discontent. In a word, unhappiness. I don't know, maybe you feel like you've been given hay salad or a rotten turnip by life. But this is important. They, they don't see the feast because they have failed to recognize something about Aslan. They have failed to see that Aslan is merciful. That he would actually bless 
those who have opposed him. And, and they don't want to be taken in by this because they are afraid of the implications that it might have. And that's the particular attribute of God that I want us to gaze at this morning. His mercy. And what I want us to do is to, to take it out of our peripheral view and place, place it right in focus. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. Title is Seeing God's Mercy Fixes My Unforgiveness. But before we continue, I think there's something that we need to be aware of. This event of preaching that we experience every Sunday is a deeply serious struggle. There is so much working against you hearing and receiving the word of God this morning. Pastor Keith shared some of that with us a few months ago with the parable of the soils and Jesus' admonishment to be careful how we hear. There is distraction and resistance from without and within. But there is also so much working for you. In this moment, if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, leading you to believe and obey his word. But there is a particular difficulty when it comes to speaking about the subject of forgiveness. In fact, in a moment, every single one of you are about to be tempted to tune me out. And here's why. Perhaps you're not right now. Facing the necessity to forgive. And so there's the problem of relevance. But you will need this message in the days ahead. And in not many days. But maybe you are facing the need to forgive someone. In which case you really don't want to listen to me. This issue, maybe more than any other, is, is met with our defense and dismissal. And that's because it touches us right where we are wounded most. And our text is about to apply some pressure onto that wound. And maybe now you've already begun formulating an argument in your head as to why your situation is the exception to the inerrant word of God. But let me begin with two premises and, and then lead us to three things that we need to see in our passage. So the first premise is that the unforgiving life is an unhappy life. I think we all know this to be true. Now, there is a perceived happiness in unforgiveness. We think that it would be better for us to make the other person pay. We trick ourselves into settling for hardness of heart because that seems to be the only option that we can conceive of as just. But I've heard it said that bitterness is the poison that you swallow while expecting the other person to die. Now, really... How many of us have ever experienced genuine happiness by holding someone in the cage of their failure? I think if we were honest, we'd discover that we are really the ones in the cage. So there is wonderful freedom that's available to us. But here's the second premise and the, the reason why we really need to pay attention this morning. And that's the unforgiving life is a spiritually perilous life. There is a warning in our passage that we need to be sobered by. And we'll come to that in a moment. But there's something about God that we need to see. So let's read together. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay 
His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the master fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger... His master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And so also will my heavenly father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Well, let's pray. Lord, I consider the story in the Gospels where Jesus heals the blind man. And at first he looks out and he sees people that look like trees walking. And then Jesus touches his eyes and then he sees everything clearly. Oh Lord, that's desperately what we need to experience this morning. We need from you the miracle of being able to see with increasing clarity. So that we might be able to live the life that you've called us to. So grant us vision, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the three things in this passage that Jesus wants us to see accurately. And they are to see the tremendous cost for God to forgive. See the minimal cost for us to forgive. And see the conditional element of forgiveness. So first, see the tremendous cost for God to forgive. Well, this story that Jesus gives is prompted by Peter's question. Jesus has just finished explaining the process for seeking restoration with someone who has wronged us. And then Peter asks in verse 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, in rabbinic discussion of the day, it was the consensus that someone should be forgiven a repeated offense up to three times. And then on the fourth, no dice. So, so Peter is actually aiming high here. Perhaps he thinks that Jesus might be impressed by his suggestion. But Jesus responds by essentially removing limits entirely. In verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, which could also be rendered as I think it should be here as 70 times seven or 490. And this is a significant number biblically. We find it in the book of Daniel as he's prophesying the year of the end of Israel's exile and ultimately the arrival of the messianic age. It was also after every 49 years in Israel that a year of jubilee was to be declared when when all debts were to be canceled and slaves set free. And Jesus is saying, this is the time period in salvation history that we live in. And it has radical implications for how we treat one another today. A key theme in the book of Matthew is the arrival of the coming of the kingdom and the influence it brings on followers of Jesus. God has inaugurated a new period in history that changes everything. It is the age of liberty. 
the ultimate year of Jubilee. And therefore, it is the arena of forgiveness. And Jesus illustrates this new kingdom economy with a parable. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. That's an interesting starting point. He compares God to a king settling accounts. And immediately certain images are supposed to come to mind as we consider this setting. A throne room. A crown. Subjects standing before their ruler needing to give an account for what they owe him. And he is there to collect. Now these are some pictures that are foreign to our culture today. They're certainly foreign to our political context of representative government and an elected president. But they're also very different from the typical religious ideas that are popular today. Where God's just a nice guy who never make you do anything you don't want to do. But Pastor Keith installed some of this last Sunday when we considered God's lordship and authority. And if you want a download of this concept, just listen to the audio from this year's men's retreat, which majored in God's kingship. But look at verse 24. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him. Now, we'll look at the figure that represents his debt in a moment. But I want us to feel the weight of that three-word description. We owe God. And we owe Him everything. There is nothing that He cannot ask of us. Right now, you are breathing borrowed air. Right now, the molecules of your body are held together by the word of His power. As Acts 17 says, He gives graciously to all mankind life and breath and everything else. In Him, we live and move and have our being. Which means, apart from Him, no life, no breath, nothing. He has made us and sustains us. And by our very existence, we are indebted to Him with our lives. We owe Him. That's the structure of reality. We owe God honor, worship, allegiance, obedience. And one day He will settle accounts. But look at the amount of the debt here. It is simply ridiculous. Verse 24, owed him 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was the highest form of currency. I read a news report this week. It was one of those links that become unavoidable because everybody's sharing it on Facebook. So maybe you saw it as well if you enjoy Facebook and other forms of self-inflicted punishment. But it was about a man who was arrested after attempting to pay his bill at a restaurant with a $1 trillion note. Uh, So apparently that brilliant idea didn't go over so well. Obviously, the highest form of currency in circulation today is the $100 bill. But in the first century, it was a talent which represented 20 years of wages. And here it says he owed him 10,000 talents. And 10,000 or a myriad was the highest named Greek numeral. So basically this is the largest amount of money that could be described in first century culture. If you do the math on your iPhone, it comes to 200,000 years of wages in that day, which more or less would be $12 billion in today's terms. Now, this is, I imagine to all of us, an incomprehensibly large amount of money. I mean, if you've got this kind of money, come and talk to me after the service. I'd love to add you to our Christmas card list. (laughs) 
But this is his debt. And it's most likely stolen from the king. And yet, it doesn't even begin to come close to truly describing our offense against God. Not only do we owe God everything, but we have failed Him in everything. We need to see this from a biblical perspective. Apart from Christ, all we do is sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the fundamental nature of sin. Everything stems from a prideful motive. Everything is an attempt to remove God from His rightful place and position something else there. But not only have we robbed the King of His glory, but we have sought to declare ourselves King. We have engaged in spiritual insurrection and cosmic treason. And by doing so, we have brought upon ourselves unending divine wrath. Now that might not make us comfortable to hear that. But it's not really about what makes us comfortable, but what is true. And this is true. And the reality is we need a robust category for the wrath of God in order for grace to be truly amazing. That's another way of saying that we need to take time to stare at the righteousness and justice of God in order for His mercy to have its transforming effect on us. So there's an incomprehensible debt. But notice what happens next. Verse 26 So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And just a note of of interpretation, parables are not allegories, not everything lines up with what it's intended to represent. You know, elsewhere, Jesus uses a cranky, unjust judge as a comparison to God to make a point. And that's just to say we never did. What was described here. If we recognize theologically what scripture teaches us. We know that we didn't initiate God showing mercy to us. We provided no motivation or inclination to him. But here's how the story unfolds here. But the amazing thing is that he offers to pay it back. If only the king would be patient. And if you remember the amount that is owed, Jesus hearers probably couldn't help but crack a smile at this moment. Pay it back? (laughs) That's obviously impossible. That's like saying, hey, just give me 200,000 years and I'll get you your money. It ain't happening. But notice how the king responds. Verse 27. And out of pity for him. Out of Mercy, the master of that servant, released him and forgave him the debt. So the king moves far beyond the request and provides complete forgiveness. He just totally removes the obligation to pay what is owed. He chooses not to penalize the servant at all. For the outrageous way that he's handled the king's money. Now does that astound you? There should be something shocking about this. Again, that's how parables work. They use startling details and dramatic surprises. You find this surprising? Is it utterly counterintuitive? Or have these details become familiar and unimpressive. If so, then you probably feel like you've been given a rotten turnip or water from a donkey trough. You're missing the feast. This is why we desperately need to take time to stare at the mercy of God. A few weeks ago, Pastor Peter had us read Psalm 103, verse 2, 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then he begins to list them. Well, what does he mention first? Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns your life with steadfast love and mercy? Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? And then verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Listen to this. As far. As the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I've never flown over the North Pole, but my sister-in-law and her husband live in China as missionaries. And they've actually had to fly over the North Pole to get there. And if you think about it, if if you keep heading north, you eventually start heading south. But if you start flying around the globe heading east, no matter how long you fly, you'll never find yourself all of a sudden start heading west. This is not how those directions work. East and west are categorical opposites. And that's what David is saying here. That's the distance between us and our sin as to the condemning effect it can have on us. In God's mind, it is removed As far away as conceptually possible. And David knew this experience personally. After he had been convicted by sin, he prayed in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Blot them out. He's asking for God to wipe away his guilt like you'd remove a stain from your counter with a wet rag. And the amazing thing is, that's exactly what God does. David experiences consequences in his life from his sin as part of God's fatherly discipline. But he also receives from Nathan the pronouncement of God's complete forgiveness. Nathan tells him in 2 Samuel 12, The Lord has put away your sin. And you might think, wait a minute. Just like that? I mean, he's committed adultery and murder. And and just like that, God's going to forgive him. He's just going to make it go away. Well, not exactly. He's going to make the debt go away by absorbing it himself through the death of his son. And that's what forgiveness always requires. It always comes at a cost. You know, if you were to borrow my car and wreck it, uh, I can either make you pay for the damages or, or I can pay for them myself. You know, removing the insurance company out of the thought experiment. Sorry to Bob Swanson, who's not here anyway. Uh, but one way or another, someone has to pay. Which means that forgiveness is always costly. In this story... For the king to release the servant from the debt, he must do so at a tremendous cost. And God has forgiven us at the greatest personal cost. He gave what was most precious to him. His son. And if he's given him, he's given everything. Now we've mentioned... A few times the challenge posed by those who are called the new atheists today. And and, and one of the things that the new atheists hate is the Christian doctrine of forgiveness in Christ. They don't get it uh, because, ironically enough, they are moralistic Pharisees. Uh, For example, Christopher Hitchens said, I think the teachings of Christianity are immoral. 
whatever that means in an atheistic world. The central one is the most immoral of all. That is the one of vicarious redemption, that you can throw your sins onto somebody else. But atonement in Christianity is not throwing your sins onto somebody else. It is God throwing your sins on himself. It is the very one that we have wronged, bearing in himself, in the person of his son, the penalty of our wrongdoing. And it is sufficient enough to deal with every injustice that we have done to him. It is payment enough to cover every sin. Jesus calls his followers to extend limitless mercy because that is precisely what we have received. No sin is too significant or too heinous for God to forgive. I'll say that again. No sin is too significant or too heinous for God to forgive because nothing is beyond the power of Jesus to save. What have you done? What is the debt that you have accrued? As we talked about last week, how have you played the fool? Do you have a a portfolio of life decisions that have been pursued through a mindset of functional atheism? Saying in your heart, there is no God because he makes no difference on your choices and pursuits. How have you messed up life? And hurt others in the process. Who are the people that have fronted the storms of your bad attitudes and frustrations? More importantly, how have you offended a holy God? How have you broken His law? How have you worshipped and lived for the gifts He gives without regard for the giver? At the end of our life, we will look at our bank statement and realize that we have lived a list of debits. But amazingly, in Christ, they will all be cleared away. This is God's mercy. This is his kingdom economy, and it is utterly different from anything in this world. And the remarkable thing is that this parable actually only tells us half of the story. As you read the rest of the New Testament, you you find out that we're not just forgiven a debt, but we are credited with a positive bank figure. We have deposited into our moral checking account every right thing that Jesus did. Every time you obeyed his father, it was a transaction in our favor. And we will draw on those riches for all eternity. You see this? It's God's mercy. And yet, like the dwarfs near the feast, it is possible to be unaffected by this display of mercy. Jesus said the one who was forgiven much loves much. And the one who's forgiven little loves little. Well, in this story, this man is forgiven much. But it doesn't seem to produce much love in him for either the king or his fellow servants. And the the reason is that he, he glanced in the direction of the king's mercy, but he didn't gaze. And it had some devastating effects on the people around him. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out. He found one of his fellow servants. So, so they're in the, in the same category of being. He's, he's left the throne room and entered the marketplace. And, and so this is a dispute between two people on the same level. In the grand scheme of things, it's like an argument between two ants in an anthill, not realizing they just missed getting squashed. And it says, who owed him a hundred denarii. Here's where a major contrast enters the story. 
in a way that makes the actions that follow unthinkable. But let's consider this. A denarius was a day's wage. So this represents 100 days of labor, which, depending on your salary, would be about $16,000 today. Now, that's, that's a significant amount. <laughs> Imagine if I, if I borrowed 10 bucks from you for lunch, you might not worry about it if I forget to pay you back. But if I steal 16 grand from you, that's probably a different matter. And, and we should realize this. There are genuine wrongs that we experience at the hands of others. Let's not be biblically naive. Some people take David's statements in Psalm 51 that he's ultimately sinned against the Lord as if that means that we aren't ever sinned against. But obviously, that's not true. Since this passage immediately follows Jesus telling us what to do when, in verse 15, your brother sins against you. We experience real hurt. It is genuinely costly. And if we don't honestly reckon with this, then when we go to extend forgiveness to others, it will be superficial. And it won't last. It won't be protected against the residual pain that will resurface in our hearts in the future. When we have been sinned against, it is appropriate and necessary to recognize that. You know, the wife who discovers that her husband has begun testing the waters with other women has received a breach of covenant promises. The hurt and the distrust that she feels are reasonable. The young adult still dealing with his or her parents' obvious favoritism toward another sibling has experienced confusion and pain. The teenager whose reputation was destroyed at school has experienced real suffering. The employee with a neglectful or unfair boss must reckon with the difficulty and the disadvantage that comes from this. The person who's been a victim of an abuse of authority or power has experienced damage which does not quickly heal. The wrong is real. The injustice will not go unnoticed. But in our story, the cost is genuine, but obviously minimal in comparison to what the servant owed the king. Jesus' disciples must have been shocked when they heard what happened next. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Like how Craig Keener describes this, he says, Apparently the forgiven slave, instead of internalizing the principle of grace, had decided to become ruthlessly efficient in his exacting of debts henceforth. I mean, the unfolding of the narrative is humorous. If it wouldn't be so sad, he's just left the presence of the king and on his way out, he determines to collect what is owed. But the irony continues, verse 29, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So his fellow servant in the same position he was in only a few moments ago, except that the size of the respective debts can't even be compared. And, and he is pleading for mercy with the verbatim words that the other servant uses in verse 26. And yet he refuses. He puts him in prison. Until he pays. And that is the heart 
of unforgiveness. That's the picture that should enter our minds. It is refusing to show mercy and putting the other person in a cage until we feel like they have repaid us. This happens in a variety of ways. Maybe there isn't this kind of confrontation between you and the other person, but the heart attitude is the same. It's the assumption that I have the right to judge and I have determined according to my rules and my economy that you owe me. And I've also determined that I will not be satisfied until you pay me every penny. Let me tell you, that satisfaction never comes. Bitterness and resentment will swallow it up. No matter how many times you replay the video in your mind, no matter how many times you put the incident under review or argue it out in your head or gossip about it to others, it never provides you what you are seeking. At the end of the day, you will still stare that incident in the face and say, pay what you owe. You haven't given me enough pennies yet. What we are doing is latching our happiness onto how we've been treated. We've hitched up the trailer of our life to our hurtful experience and given it permission to take us wherever it goes. And, and, And when I resent you, not only have I put you in prison, but I've allowed what you've done to me to steal away my joy. Which means that I've locked myself in the cell with you and swallowed the key. You see, unforgiveness is the attempt to find happiness in something that will never give it to us. Which is why it's, it's really a form of idolatry. Which is why it's so necessary for us to gaze at God if we're going to experience freedom. We need an overwhelming Awareness of God's mercy that releases us entirely from the economy of exacting debts. What's the heart of unforgiveness? But Jesus mentions here forgiving your brother from your heart in verse 35. So so what does that look like? What does it mean to forgive? Well, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, it looks like not keeping a record of wrongs, not holding on to the offense in in a file somewhere to be used as a piece of evidence in a future argument. Forgiveness means you've set a match to the file. You have permanently released them from the debt. It means not brooding over the past, not entertaining thoughts of ill will, Against the other person. It means restoration of the relationship. Jesus describes this in verse 15 as gaining back your brother. Now now not that the relationship, whether that's a, a marriage or a friendship or a family member, will be totally unaffected by what has happened, depending on how significant it is. But it doesn't define or destroy the relationship. Love defines it. It means not retaining the rights to be suspicious. Not concluding that if they have wronged you once in a category, that they will certainly do it again. In other words, forgiveness refuses the posture of presumptive future guilt. Now, in in, in some cases, forgiveness needs to be attended by wisdom. Perhaps the person has, has proven that they can't be trusted in certain activities and, and maybe it wouldn't serve them to relate to them in the same way you always have, especially if it touches a category of temptation for them. There are, guys, there are many complex situations that make walking out forgiveness messy. 
And obviously any of the pastors would be happy to sit down with you and and talk through these things. But what we're considering primarily is the attitude of a heart that has been affected by the mercy of God. And it looks a certain way. Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, describes the promises of forgiveness very helpfully. But how many of us have, have read this book, The Peacemaker, by Ken Sandy? Right, that, that's dangerously few for a church this size, for our own good. We should, we should get a copy of that book and, and read through it. But, but here's how he describes forgiveness. He says, through forgiveness, God tears down the walls that our sins have built. And he opens the way for a renewed relationship with him. This is exactly what we must do if we are to forgive as the Lord forgives us. We must release the person who has wronged us from the penalty of being separated from us. We must not hold wrongs against others, not think about the wrongs, and not punish others for them. Therefore, forgiveness may be described as a decision to make four promises. I will not dwell on this Incident. I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident and I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. And if you want an easy way to re- remember that, the nursery rhyme version is no bad thoughts, hurt you not, gossip never. Friends forever. All right, no bad thoughts. Hurt you not. Gossip never. Friends forever. That's forgiveness. It absorbs the cost. But as we've seen, it, it is a genuine but minimal cost. When we consider the outrageous generosity of the grace of God in the gospel. But there's a third thing in our text that we need to see. And that is the conditional element of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not unconditional, strictly speaking. That's true on a a vertical level, as we'll see from God's forgiveness of us in in a moment. but But it's also true in the horizontal level between persons. There are a few parallel passages in the Gospels where Jesus teaches on forgiveness, but there are a few important qualifiers that he includes. Maybe you've noticed these. Luke 17, verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if He sins against you seven times a day. That's a lot. Seven times a day. And returns to you seven times a day saying, I repent. Forgive him. Mark 17, 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. So in Scripture, we're never explicitly commanded to pronounce forgiveness to an unrepentant person. Now, we must always be ready in our hearts to forgive. And this, this is an issue of the heart. But, and some things can be quickly overlooked. But in matters of serious offense, so that the relationship is significantly affected, if the person who has wronged you does not acknowledge their sin then to pronounce them forgiven in that situation actually doesn't serve them. If they don't realize what they've done or refuse to recognize it, then to forgive them without any condition or expectation for them to change is not helpful. And if we back up in our text a little bit, you see this in process. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. What if they don't listen? Well, then there's more work to be done. And Jesus outlines that process. He provides the steps for us, which, by the way, we should 
memorize. But what you need to do is risk going through that process. It's so much easier just to ignore the offense or more likely ignore the person. But Jesus invites us to imitate the heart of his father, the one he describes in verse 12 of this chapter as the shepherd leaving the 99 and pursuing the sheep that has gone astray. We seek out the sinner with a view for restoration. But what's most important in this passage for us to see isn't the condition of our forgiveness toward others. But the condition of our forgiveness before God. Let's return to our story. Verse 22, 32 rather. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt. Because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then Jesus explains with these disturbing words, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Forgiveness is a risk. But unforgiveness is a greater risk. It's spiritually perilous. And our text tells us that if we are walking in Unforgiveness, it is because we have failed to adequately gaze at the mercy of God. But there is also a more sobering warning here because if we continue in resentment without changing, it may mean that we have not seen God in a saving way at all. Let me mess with us theologically a little bit. Jesus is basically saying here, forgive others or you're going to hell. You see, God does not forgive unconditionally. He forgives freely because of what Jesus has done. But he forgives those who repent of their sin and turn in faith to Christ. Those are conditions. Now, they are conditions that by his grace he brings about in us. Pastor Keith explored some of this with us a few weeks ago. But they are real conditions. And that life of repentant faith has implications. There ought to be visible signs of vitality on display in us, including a willingness to operate in God's radical kingdom economy of mercy. So the king says to his servant in verse 33, Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And James writes in James 2, 12, Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. The question is, on the day of judgment, do you want to face a God of mercy or a God without mercy? Here's the follow-up question. You plan to hold God to a standard that you yourself refuse to follow. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts. And there's more to the sentence. As we also have forgiven our debtors. You ever pray that? That's a scary prayer request. And so he goes on to say, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, of course, this is an ongoing process. And all of us struggle at times with Forgiveness. But Jesus is saying that it is possible to be hardened in unforgiveness and thus prove that we have not received the forgiveness of God. 
And the reason is that our refusal to forgive others is an implicit statement that we ourselves don't need the forgiveness of God. That we haven't wronged God and that we aren't in need of mercy. And therefore, it's an implicit rejection of the gospel itself. It's dangerous. It's like you're swimming in the ocean, holding on to a boulder of all the ways that people have wronged you. And God throws you a life preserver. But in order to grasp onto the life preserver, you've got to let go of the boulder. You can't keep holding it or you'll drown. Let it go. Kurt, you can go ahead and come back up, man. J.C. Riles, J.C. Riles says this. It's clear from this parable that one motive for forgiving others ought to be the recollection that we all need forgiveness at God's hands ourselves. Something we need to gaze at. But he goes on to say, another motive for forgiving others ought to be the recollection of the day of judgment and the standard by which we shall all be tried in that day. There will be no forgiveness in that day for unforgiving people. Such people would be unfit for heaven. Here's why. They would not be able to value a dwelling place to which mercy is the eternal subject of song. Guys, if, if mercy is a dissonant note to you today, if it's like hearing chords played out of tune, that's the song of all eternity. We've got to grow loving it now. Surely if we mean to stand at the right hand when Jesus sits on the throne of his glory, we must learn while on earth, to forgive. Colossians 3.13 Bear with each other and forgive one another whatever grievances you have. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Well, if, if we're to forgive as the Lord forgave us, That means we need to be in tune with that forgiveness. We need to be regularly aware of it. We need to to stare at and gaze at our God of mercy. And we see Him most clearly displayed in the gospel. Because of the gospel, we don't need others to pay. Christ has already paid. Because of the gospel, we don't need to tie our happiness and well-being to how people have responded to us. Our happiness and our well-being are found in Christ, given for us. And because of the gospel, whatever cost forgiveness requires, and it is a cost, We can bear it freely, knowing we can die to ourselves, becoming like Jesus in his sufferings because he has sacrificed so much more than we ever could. Let's see the God of mercy. Let's fix our happiness by fixing our gaze on this God. Let's go ahead and stand together. Jesus tells us in Mark eleven twenty five, whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have, but this is like normal Sunday morning experience. I hope we do this. When you stand together, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, forgive so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. I think we have the opportunity to do that. I want us, I want to invite us to, 
take this opportunity in, in a way that provides a moment of decision, humbling ourselves and coming forward and just recognizing I, I've got people in a cage. There are individuals that I've got my hands around their neck and I'm demanding payment. And maybe they're no they're longer even alive, but I'm still demanding payment. Or maybe there's somebody you need to speak with this week. Well, pursue that opportunity. But right now, I, wanna, I want us to pursue God working in our hearts by leading us to gaze at his mercy. So if the Lord messed with you through this message in any way, and there are individuals he's placed on your heart, I'd like you to just go ahead and come forward. Please come forward to the front and you have a moment while we sing. Have a moment with God. And say, God, I need to look at your mercy again. It's grown familiar. It has ceased to astound me in a way that turns everything upside down and allows me to participate in your radical kingdom economy. I need to learn to forgive and I need to stare at the forgiveness you've given me. So guys, let's, let's begin to sing and you guys just get with the Lord.